Welcome to What's Eric Eating, Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Don Medrano from Truly Texas Mexican coming up in a little bit. But first, I'm joined by my co-host this week. She is the owner of Avondale Food and Wine in Montrose. We follow her on Instagram at Mary Lee Clarkson. Mary Clarkson, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm well. Happy to be here, Eric. Thank you for having me. Thanks for doing this. Let us dive right into the news of the week. Topic number one. I'll give the audience a second to just guess. No, I won't. It's the mask. It's the lifting of the mask mandate <laughs> and the end of the capacity restrictions by Texas Governor Greg Abbott. Uh, I mean, we could go through sort of the ins and outs of this, but essentially, uh, like the governor said in a press conference, Texas is open 100%. So uh, you do not need a mask to enter a restaurant. Staff are not required to be masked anymore. Restaurants can operate at their full capacity for the first time uh, since a year ago. Uh, obviously, different restaurants are responding in different ways to this. Uh, most restaurants are maintaining some version of their COVID protocols, whether that's maintaining six feet of separation between tables, whether that's staying at 50% capacity or maybe 75% capacity. Uh, certainly, most restaurants have their staff still wearing masks, and uh, they are, in many cases, requiring that customers wear masks when they're not seated at the table. Uh, Mary, that includes your restaurant, Avondale Food and Wine. Um, yes. Tell me a little bit about kind of how you made that decision, and, and when you saw the governor's order, uh, what was your reaction? Ooh, um, definitely mixed feelings on this one. Um, I always try to look at both sides of everything, and this one was kind of hard to. Um, if I had to pick one of the two things I was somewhat okay with, it would be the 100% capacity, but I personally am keeping our capacity at 50%. Uh, I am not okay with the removal of the mask requirement at the very minimum until anyone who wants a vaccine has had the opportunity to get one. And we are definitely not there yet. No, Mary, I tend to agree with you. I think we are so close to broader distribution of the COVID vaccine. And, you know, the CDC came out with their guidelines, which basically say that if everybody in a group has had the vaccine, if they're two weeks past their second dose for uh, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine, or a certain amount of time after the single shot Johnson and Johnson vaccine, that you can gather together in small groups without a mask on. And so as a, a restaurant industry employee, you know, if, if they have access to a vaccine, then they could work in an environment where people are not masked or, you know, they could even work without a mask and feel like they're going to be okay because the, the rate for, you know, the vaccine is, you know, 95% or something like that. Not a, not an epidemiologist, not claiming detailed knowledge of how this stuff works. Just, uh, just trying to be an educated person who reads up on this. So once a restaurant staff has been vaccinated, then it, it, it almost doesn't matter. You know, customers can behave as they want. So, uh, you know, if Greg Abbott had opened this up to 100% capacity, but maintained the mask requirement until more people were vaccinated, until we were closer to herd immunity, April 1st, April 15th, May 1st, whatever, whatever, I would feel a lot better about this decision, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I will continue to wear my mask. I expect the people who listen to this podcast are well-behaved diners and they will continue to wear their mask when they are asked to buy a restaurant. I mean, my, my, my ultimate thing here is the consumer can make the choice deciding to feel where they you know, where they feel comfortable dining. And for us, our customer base feels safer dining with us than perhaps other restaurants. So it's important for us to keep that 50% for now and then look at it after, you know, maybe a month or two from now and possibly revisit it then. But, you know, my, my partner, Chef Olivier, has, not, has had his first vaccine, but not his second. 
and I'm scheduled to get my first this weekend. So that's kind of a little bit of snapshot of what I'm hearing from other people in the industry is a vaccine availability. I know some people have been able to get theirs, but definitely not everyone. Right. Uh, hospitality restaurant workers are in group one C and availability for one C is sort of spotty. It does seem like in Harris County that is becoming increasingly available, but it's going to take some time and, and you have to get the two doses either three weeks apart or four weeks apart, depending on which one it is. And then you don't achieve the full effect until two weeks after that. So again, you know, by the middle of April or, or May, we may have, I think, I think you may start to see restaurants drop this if their staff is able to get the vaccine. But until then, I think we can expect that a lot of these protocols are going to remain in place just to protect the health of the people who are required to be there. Yes, customers can choose where they dine. If they want to go to a place that doesn't require them to wear a mask, that is certainly their choice. If they want to go to a place that does require masks, that is definitely their choice. And just as it is a business's choice, whether or not to require them, but from a, from a protecting your fellow citizen standpoint, um, you know, until we, until we have broader vaccine distribution, it just, it does seem premature. I agree. Topic number two, actual restaurant news. The team behind Doris Metropolitan announced they will open Badolina Bakery and Cafe in Rice Village this spring. This will join Hamsa, their modern Israeli restaurant that is also opening in Rice Village. That's coming a little bit later, but Badolina is coming soon. Mary, let me just throw it to you. What do you think about the bread and the pastries and and that whole experience at Doris Metropolitan getting a dedicated home? I am very much looking forward to it. I think their bread service is exceptional and honestly like a dish unto itself. Um, I could be happy just with the bread service some days. So this will be a, a great new bakery to look forward to. You know, I think, you know, that all of the breads that they do at Doris are so outstanding. It really is the best restaurant bread, I think, in Houston. And so for Chef uh, Michal Michelli, who's the pastry chef there, she's maybe been flying a little bit under the radar. And this will really, you know, give her a showcase and and certainly raise her profile. And, and really, I just I just couldn't be more excited about this. Looking forward to it myself. Yes. Give me all of the, you know, and, and I'll be curious to kind of see like how far down the rabbit hole they go. I mean, Bobka certainly laminated doughs for sure. You know, will they do like traditional, like Jewish rye bread or, you know, holiday dishes like hamantaschen? I, you know, I don't know what the plans are, but I'm super excited about it. And I just think that this is going to be a really nice addition to Rice Village and a really nice addition just to sort of the like Jewish life kind of culinary uh, world in Houston. I'm just glad that we're getting some new concepts out of all this chaos that are different than what we've had before um, out of this last year of COVID. I think there's going to be a lot of creativity that springs from it. Yeah. And I like the optimism that we're sort of seeing, right. That, People who have plans are sort of expanding their plans. People are are checking out spaces there and they're trying to broaden what they're doing so that, I, I mean, you know, God forbid we have another shutdown or anything else happens, but you know, this is a grab and go concept, right? It's a, it's a bakery cafe with uh, a patio space and it's mostly to go. So it's uh, it's a very flexible concept. All right. Topic number three, <laughs> La Calle, the downtown taqueria, has two new locations in the works. The first is in Midtown and Bagby Park, in the old Rico space. That was announced a year ago or uh, maybe even a little longer than that. It's been, it's been slow going, but it's finally in progress. And then the second one is coming to the intersection of Ella and 34th in Garden Oaks. Mary, are you a La Calle fan? I am, and I'm excited about kind of the diversity of their two locations. I think Oak 
forest is a really smart spot to be putting in any type of concept in right now. Uh, the density of that neighborhood keeps growing. And then Midtown, you know, Midtown's, Midtown's been a little sad the last year. So I, I think some new life into that neighborhood uh, will be a good addition as well. Yeah, I mean, the Midtown one is obviously, you know, the, the downtown location is open late. You know, I think like pre-pandemic as late as three or four in the morning. And, you know, this one, when it really gets rocking and rolling, will be open till 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., kind of depending on what the demand is. And, of course, you know, there's been there's kind of new life on Bagby. That whole bar scene has really been revitalized, whether it's Electric Feel Good or Wonder Bar that just opened. Uh, we haven't talked about it on the show, but FAO uh, just replaced, opened in the old third floor space next to what used to be Pub Fiction. So there's a lot kind of going on in terms of the party scene. And those people will need food when they get out of the bars. And there is just Absolutely. nothing really better than a couple of tacos, a torta, whatever. Um, yeah, I've had Ramon uh, Soriano Tomka on before. He's the the owner of... La Calle, and you know he's got this ton of experience Mexico City native uh, he's been in Houston for a few years now and and it's just been a it's been a very successful concept and i'm I'm really excited to see it grow I think in some ways the bars in midtown will bounce back faster than the the restaurants because that demographic's willing to go out sooner because it's it steers younger so i think um I think they'll do very well in midtown and then I think they'll to the families um, and the Oak Forest neighborhoods. So they're covering a lot of ground here. Oh yeah, no, that, that Oak Forest location, they will do breakfast seven days a week, breakfast tacos. Uh, they'll do like a pretty good lunch business. There's the hospital near there. There's some offices, like that'll be fine. They'll do like easy to go dinner, very family friendly. And then, you know, Will they have a late night business? I, I don't really know. I think that's really hard to predict. But, you know, if there is demand, like they are certainly designed to accommodate that. Excited to try both of these uh, in the near future <laughs> with you. Yes, absolutely. All right, Mary, that does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurant of the week. Stick around. Mary, for our restaurant of the week, I want to talk to you about Messina Hoff Harvest Green Winery and Kitchen. This is the latest uh, expansion in the Messina Hoff portfolio. Uh, Harvest Green is a master plan community in Richmond, basically near the intersection of the Grand Parkway and Highway 90. Um, In the interest of full disclosure, I will say that we had our Saturday brunch with the Messina Hoff CEO and chief winemaker, Paul Bonarigo. So, you know, we didn't have like what I would call the most objective uh, experience, but it was actually really great to meet him and talk to him about all that Messina Hoff has going on. Yeah. I thought, I thought the complex that we're in, they obviously built it new ground up um, was really delightful. And I honestly did not know that this is their third location uh, they had something like 80, 80 plus wines that they're producing. Obviously not all of them are on the menu at the same time, but the restaurant felt really nice and open. They had a great patio. Uh, they were serving both brunch and a lunch menu. Uh, it was kind of cute to see all the bicycles lined out up front from people in the community that had ridden their bikes there that day. Uh, they were dog-friendly on the patio, an enormous tasting bar. Uh, they're also using it as their facility to ship uh, wine to their consumers there. But pleasantly surprised by the wines. We tried some whites and some reds. We had a dessert wine that was delightful. Uh, I thought that their wines were honestly better than I thought they would be in my mind. Uh, they, they were surprisingly good. No, I... I mean, I agree with you. I, I don't have your palate for wine. I don't have your expertise, but I had a Tempranillo I enjoyed. I had a Sangiovese that I really enjoyed. And, you know, they, to their credit, you know, they've been around since the late 70s and 
it's no bullshit. It's all Texas grown grapes. They, you know, they make the wines in Bryan, which is their, their big production facility. And uh, just as a small point of clarification, this is actually their fourth Messina Hof like major winery. So they have one in their headquartered in Bryan. Uh, they have one in Fredericksburg, of course, that's kind of the winery capital of Texas. They have one up in the Dallas area in Grapevine. And now this one in Richmond, I agree with you. It's an impressive facility, you know, you know, not maybe not the most beautiful restaurant, but, but very functional uh, with a nice open kitchen. Like you said, a big tasting bar, a spacious patio. And it, I mean, and a really impressive turnout. Uh, The neighborhood has definitely embraced it. And we saw all kinds of families having brunch, you know, some people drinking wine, some people not drinking wine, but you know, and the other thing is they're making, they're making pretty good food. I mean, they're making Neapolitan pizza from a wood burning oven. And I can't think of anything Sugarland, Richmond, Katie, that's like that. And, and Paul said that they want to be VPN certified eventually. And so, you know, that's a, that's an impressive commitment to quality. I mean, and I, and I thought that pizza was pretty legit. It had a nice char on its crust. It had the right, balance of mozzarella and basil and and sauce and maybe maybe the sauce was maybe just a little bit sweet for my palate but i think that's a that's certainly a crowd pleaser and it just seems like they've got a lot of good things going on over there i think they were very smart to pair a lot of their you know seemingly pair their wines for their menu or vice versa and and so you definitely saw a mix of beverages being served i mean rosé i was looking on the patio Seeing that, obviously, they're still trying to appeal to the Cabernet type of drinker that wants the big, full-bodied red. But the distinction for this winery and others in Texas that I respect is that they're actually growing their grapes in Texas. There are a lot of wineries or tasting rooms that are kind of acting as though they're growing their grapes in Texas, when meanwhile, they're really importing them from California. So... Uh, my hat's off to anybody that is willing to work with our climate here. It is a little more difficult to grow grapes here, obviously, than a place like Napa Valley or Sonoma or Oregon. So they're making it work. Yeah, and they'll evolve their programming. I mean, right now they're just kind of doing food and you can sit at the bar and have a glass of wine. But they'll start doing tasting classes. They have a couple acres of vineyards under cultivation with a couple more coming. So there will be harvest events and some some education, you'll, you'll actually be able to learn a little bit more about kind of how they grow the grapes and, and make the wines. And, and I think that's all to the good and, and sort of anything that advances the, the knowledge and appreciation for Texas wines is, is a good thing. Yeah, I'm very excited that they are closer to Houston and the drive wasn't bad. It was about 40 minutes and we hit construction delays on the way there. So I think the drive time is totally reasonable for somebody in the city that wanted a weekend excursion. So another, another nice kind of baby road trip uh, within Houston to see what's going on in our surrounding communities. Yes. In some ways this, this whole thing makes me feel very old because I grew up in Sugarland, not that far from where Messina Hoff is. And I, I remember when, you know, that land and, and the Grand Parkway was, you know, all part of the, the prison down there, the Jester unit and, I remember when the Grand Parkway was built, I was in high school, uh, the amount of development in that part of the Houston area is just really astonishing. And this is like a real destination for that whole area. So it's it's an exciting addition. Uh, you know, like I said, we had a pretty good lunch. I like the pizza. I like my French toast. Uh, your chicken and waffles, honestly, was just okay. Uh, waffle wasn't quite as crispy as I might have liked it to be, but... Uh, but we really enjoyed the wines and the atmosphere, and uh, and I'd be curious to go back and, and try their dinner menu, I think. Me too. I mean, I would I would go back there maybe in a month or two, right? They were only open for a week when we went, so I always like to give a restaurant a minute uh, to work through their growing pains. Absolutely. All right, Mary, that does it for our Restaurant of the Week. Thank you very much. Thank you, Eric. <laughs> and I will be right back with Don Medrano.
I am joined by the executive producer and the writer of Truly Texas Mexican, a new documentary film that can be seen on Apple, Google, and Amazon. Adon Medrano, welcome to the show. How are you? Hi, Eric. Uh, I'm, I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for doing this. I, I, I want to dive into the film, obviously, but before we do that, I want to talk about you just for a little bit. Uh, you're a food writer, you're a cookbook author, you're a professional chef. Tell me a little bit just about kind of your journey into that world. When did you, when did you start writing? I, uh, I began writing. Uh, my first career was as a, as a television producer. I was an on-air host when in my 20s on uh, what was then Spanish International Network, which be- became Univision. And uh, after I graduated with a, de- with a degree in radio, television, film, I began writing. Uh, I worked at CBS Television Network in New York City as a producer at the, for the news. And so we would write. And then I, and then I was producing documentaries. So I've been writing for, for film uh, since my early days in my career. After about 25 years of doing that, I became a, I began to work as a philanthropist, uh, and I did that for 23 years. I, I traveled around the world making grants to media projects and to education projects for foundations that didn't have a staff, and so they uh, they were relying on me to make grants in those areas. So, uh, I, so during that time, I was also writing. So uh, writing has been something I've done all, all my career in both careers. I returned back to television, um, to film, after I became a chef and started writing my cookbooks because I love that, that food. And uh, so I, it's something sort of that I've been doing all along. And about 10 years ago, I wrote my last documentary. I hadn't, I hadn't made any since 10 years ago. So I returned. I don't know if that answers your question, but writing is something I love to do. I've done it now with the books. I was doing it with film and television and now I did it with this film. All right. So how did you decide to sort of turn your focus Inward, I mean, you're you're uh, you grew up in San Antonio. This is, I mean, this is this is kind of to a certain extent. This documentary is your story or or the story of um, your family in some ways. How did you how did you decide to take on a a very personal project? When I was uh, cooking and and studying at the CIA, Culinary Institute of America in San Antonio, my food was absent. As I say in the film, the film starts this way with me saying I was in school and my, my, my mom's cooking, uh, you know, cooking I knew all of my life in this very important region of the country, Texas, was completely invisible. And I thought it's so delicious. And it has really, if you think about the Mexican food of Texas, we have been what the rest of the country understands as Mexican food. The format of, of chuis, the format of, of picos, I mean, all these other... It's our format. It's a food that comes from this region, and yet, and yet, it's not understood. So that's why I did it. And you know, it has to be a personal story because I don't think that um, every er, that you can do something if it's not really personal. Even though it's the film is about me and my family to some extent, but the ideas and the passion have always been mine. I, you do that with cooking. When you cook a dish, you know, I, I will cook Coco Van the French but I'll still be very personal about it. You know, it'll still be my personal narration for what the dish is. You have to love what you do. And I'm very, very blessed that I have been able to do what I love. Right. And we should distinguish that when you talk about Texas Mexican food, that's not the same as Tex-Mex, right? You, you make that distinction very early in the, in the film. I hope I made it clearly in the film. I mean, uh, um, that's what yeah, the- I, I think the line is something like, what's with all the cheese? <laughs> I hope you don't mind. No, oh, not, not at all. Thanks, friends, please. <laughs> I do say that. It's one of my exasperation lines in the, in the film. Um, you know, we all love the margaritas and the, the cheese going here and there. And the, uh, but the film really talks about uh, the food that is indigenous to Texas over these 15,000 years. You know, how did Texas, the first people who came to Texas, who stepped on Texas soil, how did they cook? You know, they're our ancestors. How did they cook? What did they cook? 
And you'll be surprised to learn that they cook quail. Corn arrived here about 700, so that's not quite so old. But quail is over 10,000 years old in this land in Texas. Quail, cactus, pecans. Pecans are native to Texas and northeastern Mexico. So it really is going back to those things. You know, the roots of the, of the early Mexican food. I mean, the Mexican food, the early roots of the Mexican food that is today. And Tex-Mex is really, it took that, tried to imitate it, and then it went its own way with restaurant formats. Ours, the Texas Mexican food, we call it in the, in the film, this cook from McAllen, Texas says, it's comida casera. I bring them memories. Yeah, let's let's talk about some of those interview subjects. I mean, how did you identify the participants who kind of round out this story? Uh, they come from my books. Uh, when I did the film, the film uh, would be based roughly on on the archaeological finds and the stories that I tell in the first book. The title of the first book is Truly Texas Mexican. It's the same title as the film, A Native Culinary Heritage and Recipes. And in the first book, I have the first two chapters dedicated to the history of the first people who stepped on Texas soil and the direct lineage to to today's indigenous Mexican-American community and cooking. So I do all of that with corn, arrival of garlic, arrival of, of, uh, of these European things. And then in the second book, I go a step further. How is it being done today more specifically in, uh, in new kinds of cooking? So I took the people who are in those two books and, um, and I asked myself as a filmmaker, who are the storytellers that really, when they meet the camera, they, they, they really come through with their stories. And it turns out that every single one in the book it turned out to be that. And the reason they turned out to be that is because when they speak, all they're doing is telling their personal stories. They just invited me into their rooms. Uh, of course, I knew them. Uh, I knew most of them anyway. And they just opened up. I retreat, you know, in, in the, as a filmmaker, I go in and uh, I'm, I'm the host, narrator of the piece. And I have to ask open-ended questions and then, and then go back and then let the, let the person really tell, tell their personal story emotionally, with uh, sensitivity, with passion. And, and they all shared very interesting stories. As you know, you've seen the film. Right. No, I, I mean, I was particularly impressed. It's not, it's not necessarily a story about restaurant cooking. It really is uh, as much about sort of home cooking traditions and you, and so there's a lot of women, right? I mean, they're, they're the people who keep the, who are responsible for, for keeping these traditions alive. In so many families. Oh, good. I'm, I'm hoping that did come through in the film, that that's the case. Yes. No, I, I, I think it does. And, and I, was, I was kind of hoping you could elaborate maybe a little bit on, on, on how you put that together or, or, or maybe just expand on it a little bit. Yes. You know, as, a, uh, as executive producer, the role is to sort of, to, the role is to manage a, a team, a director, cinematographer, a line, pr- a line producer, and of course the sound and all that, then the music, in a way that leads, hopefully when you see the film, leads you to some extent towards the person, leads you towards the story of the person so that you are not looking at the at the, at the person, a good film, in my estimation, doesn't allow you to look at the story. A good, a good film invites you to be present with the person who is undergoing that action. So I'm hoping that's what we tried to do. I'm hoping that, that we achieved it. And uh, in each case, we were invited by women. Every single chef that we interview, there are street vendors caterers and a uh, restaurant chef owner. They're all women. We interviewed only women and we didn't decide to interview women. We decided to interview people in the know, people whose voice was an authority about what this food really is about. When the chef owner in in Maria's restaurant in McAllen, Texas, uh, whose restaurant has been there for two generations, says, 
when I uh, serve this plate and this person tells me they finished eating it, they say, I was there with my grandmother. And then she says, I bring them memories. These women know that they're not just cooking a recipe and, you know, sending it out and selling it. They understand the role that food has played in our community, a role of keeping everything cohesive, a role of maintaining memory, because the ingredients that you have and the techniques were handed down. down. So every time you cook this thing, you are narrating where you came from. They understand all of this. One of the ladies who is in San Antonio, Texas, and she makes this delicious, I got to eat really good food, you know, if you see all this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This friend of mine who who is a film critic, uh, he wrote a really nice nice uh, review surprised me comparing it to uh, Anthony Bourdain's work with Latinos. He said, this is a scam. You're just going to people's homes so you can eat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 I was going to bring that up in a minute, but yes, you, you eat fabulously well kind of from the beginning to end of this thing, whether it's, it's shopping at the, at the farmer's market here in Houston or uh, making Nopales. I mean, all the way to, uh, to the barbacoa at the end of the, at the end of the film. I mean, do you have a kind of, do you have like a favorite food experience or uh, from, from the film or, or was there something you got to try that you had never had before? Well, I did try a lot of things and I fell in love with them. Uh, Many of them are in my book. And uh, the one, uh, there are two that I hadn't ever not eaten before. One is a grapefruit pie, which uh, artist Selene Celeste, um, makes, uh, she lives in Harlingen, uh, delicious pie, by the way. I mean, really, I thought I was, I thought I was, I thought I was savoring sunlight. It was so refreshing and so vibrant in the flavors. Of course, it's, you know, ruby red grapefruit, which is so delicious. And the other one was this custard that we show in the film. It's called Jericaya. And it's a, it's, it's, a process of making it, which this uh, caterer understands. And when I tasted it, it blew my mind. I mean, it was so delicate. It, it was sumptuous. The mouthfeel was so velvety and it, it was beyond creme brulee. It was so uh, creamy. And then the top of it was, was crispy, golden crispy, and it had a slight, slight hint of cinnamon. So it just, and, and I just went, oh my God. So at, at that point, I actually look at the camera. <laughs> Because I, I, I looked at the camera and I looked at the camera and I said, I said, this is really good. So I did have a lot of beautiful moments. And it's the women who have developed two things. Women invented and engineered every cooking technology that we have today, both in process and in equipment. This is the oven. This is the steaming, uh, steaming oven. This is the mortar and pestle. The things that we use today, women engineered them. Women invented them. Secondly, Women invented the culinary traditions that we find so uh, so uh, seminal and so traditional and basic. They created those. They created those flavor profiles. They they invented these things. So those two, the technologies and the flavor profiles that are traditional uh, flavor profiles of these cuisines, women invented them. And yet, the famous chefs are all men. No, I, I thought that was really instructive. And you make that point so explicitly that when they were making the barbacoa traditionally, they sent the men away, right? The, the men were there to dig the pit and start the fire. And then it's like, get out. This is, this is not your realm anymore. Do you realize that's what my niece was doing to us men? She was bossing us around. Did you get that? Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's, <laughs> so it's like uh, you're, you're holding the shovel and she's like, not there, and you move it like six inches, whatever. That's the magical six inches. Yes, right there. <laughs> I couldn't tell if, if that was if that was a critical six inches or if she was just showing off for the camera. I think maybe a little of both. <laughs> no, she, she was. This, it's all real. Everything was there was real, and it, it brings up the uh, the the rituals of cooking that are always involved in the in the Texas Mexican homes and in those restaurants that take those cuisines and bring them into the restaurants. There are many of them. Houston has many of them. Uh, and uh, she, it's, it's real. You know, everybody's involved and it's sort of chaos. And, but you could tell in the film when we were digging that hole and putting in the barbacoa, the cow's head, uh, it was the women who were telling the men what to do. <laughs> right. 
Well, and then and then at the end, this this giant thing comes out of the ground, and you unwrap it and you start making the tacos, and you're like, I, I, I have nothing. You, you know, you, you're basically just like, give me a minute, let me eat this taco, right? I'm gonna stop talking so I can eat this thing. Yes, it was so so delicious. I mean, uh, also because of the environment. You know, this. I hope that the film, as we constructed it the film is in three acts you know it's it's a it's it's your regular drama you know the beginning is the introduction of the characters the context what is the main story string the second one is the story string goes into the evolution of the flavor evolution of the of the of the people where they're coming from and and lots of flavor so there's a lot of you know uh, talking about the flavors and then the third act is the climax and the climax is we've been erased all of this that you see, it's been erased from the public forum. And right. No, I, I, I did want to ask you about that because it, I'm watching this happy scene of you guys putting the barbacoa in the ground. And then all of a sudden we cut to Corpus and you're, you're walking through the burial ground and talking about street names and denouncing the Texas uh, Historic Commission. And so, uh, oh, did I did I spoil? Is that is that a spoiler? That might be no. It's not. It's not. It's not. We say it. We say it proudly. So, um, but but I guess maybe just elaborate a little bit on that because I I, I think that was certainly the most eye opening aspect of the film for me was tying what I think of as Mexican cooking traditions to to what really are native cooking traditions, and and you know I grew up in Texas. You know, I, I think one of your, your interview subjects makes that point. You know, how long did you spend on Native history and Texas history? Not very long, not certainly not long enough. Um, and and I guess sort of elaborate on that of, of kind of writing the historical record, uh, using using this film to do that. that. That is what we tried to do in the film, to, to correct the public record, the scientific record. And so we, we have... Uh, the storytellers tell stories, tell their personal stories, and they say, up to now, what you have heard about us, indigenous peoples, have been to- has been told to you by non-indigenous people. That's the history you've, you've heard now. It, 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 we're telling our story. We, uh, we're very ha- happy, privileged, really, to have the strong collaboration of, of one of the uh, eminent archaeologist in the state of Texas, uh, a professor from Texas A&M in College Station, who goes with us. We go with him, and he excavated. He's the one who excavated all around San Antonio and discovered these uh, artifacts, uh, arrowheads, uh, earth ovens, and he describes this. And one of the, and he does say exactly what you just said. Uh, the history of Texas is all about Stephen F. Austin and the Alamo, and, but there is absolutely nothing about the cosmopolitan civilizations who lived in Houston, San Antonio, and who were in constant communication with Mesoamerica and with the Mexicas. They would travel here, we would travel over there. This was a very vibrant continent that was cosmopolitan. Even so, as you see in the film, we show an aerial, a helicopter aerial shot of this, these uh, giant pyramids, huge pyramids, and you think they're in Mexico, but they're in St. Louis. <laughs> you know, that Cahokia Mounds, they're in St. Louis. And so you see this aerial shot of this big and big uh, pyramid, and the people there are, are, look this tiny next to the pyramid. And then there's a frontal shot of the stairs going up the pyramid, and we superimpose. Uh, that's the Cahokia Mountains in St. Louis. We superimpose La Pirámide de la Luna, the the pyramid of the moon, right outside Mexico City, and they're the same. And and Dr. Alston Tom says the people who maintained the pyramids in Cahokia Mountains in St. Louis knew the people who maintained the pyramids in Tenochtitlan, Mexico City. So at those times, it was just a wonderful place of, uh, of sharing recipes and sharing foods. And that's what, that's what we do in the film in, in the third act. I mean, well, we did that in the second act, but in the third, we go into this has been erased. And why? Why right. ought it to be erased? That's, that's the, sort of the tension point in the film. Yeah, no, that... The, the the idea that that people in Mexico would have been in correspondence or trading or or had some connection to people as far north as St. Louis was absolutely mind blowing to me. It's not 
it's not something I had ever heard before. That's great. That's great. I'm so glad to hear that. We 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 hope that uh, since it's being distributed this distributed worldwide, it's in the UK, it's in Australia, it's in Canada. We hope that this will spark other stories. It will be the start of other stories. We hope, and we hope that the way that this is told is a humanistic way. We wanted to make a film that is true to the director's vision. The director, the director Anibal Capuano is from Uruguay. He's from Montevideo, Uruguay. I met him about 20 years ago uh, when I was making grants and traveling all over Latin America. I traveled Latin America, Indonesia, Japan, everywhere for 23 years. Then it got very lonely to be on the plane so much. So <laughs> it was so, but he called me, you know, after having read the book, we, we were talking on video and he, he, it was his idea to do the film. He said, I read this book. He says, this is a universal story. This is not just about Texas. This is about every community in Latin America. And he says, and the, 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 the way that the book tells it, it's a human story. So that's what we want to do in the film. We, we wanted the film to be for everybody so that everyone can find a connection. That's what a film should do. A work of art should be multifaceted so the viewer will find an entry point and interpret it his or, his, his or her way. We hope that's what it does. Right. No, I, I, think, I think that's very well stated. And I think, you know, for anyone who has an interest in, you know, Texas history or, or Texas foodways, it's, it's absolutely an essential watch. Um, I mean, are you getting that kind of reaction from people? I mean, I, I know it's only been available to the public for a short while, but, but what, what kind of feedback are you getting? Yeah, uh, it's, uh, it's been very humbling. I, uh, I knew that, uh, this was very personal to my community. I knew that this story had never been told. Uh, we have been oppressed for so long and our story has been erased under our very noses for so long, and we've known that it has been erased, supplanted by the larger stories of Tex-Mex, which says this is American food that is being uh, influenced uh, by the food that is across the river, and it's a blending of the co- uh, Anglo cowboys with the Mexican ingredients. So all these stories that completely ignore the fact that this food came from this land from us. It grew out of this land from us. It's not a mixture of over there and over here, which also puts into question your worldview of what this state is. So uh, I mentioned that, that background to say that from the, from the Latinx community, I have been overwhelmed by the positive response on Facebook, on emails that I've gotten. Uh, I would say 90% of them mention uh, Gary getting teary-eyed because they felt affirmed I am being, I am being told, I'm being spoken. My story is here and it's real. And um, I think this is due to the fact that the people on the screen are very honest. I mean, they are just themselves. There's no makeup. There's, they, we just went in there and we tried to really get inside their eyes. So they, you know that they're speaking their truth. And the critics, we have uh, John Noriega, who is the critic from UCLA. He's the, He's a, he's a film critic and also an art curator. He did the most recent Latinx exhibition at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston, this, that big exi- exhibit called Home. He, he curated that. So he writes a blurb and he said, this is a soulful film, soulful film, different from any uh, documentary that's out there. And then he compared, he said, except, except for, the, for the sometime uh, report that... Uh, Anthony Bourdain did about Latinx food. So I was glad that he compared it to Anthony Bourdain because I like his work. I, I respect his work. Uh, the other critics have also been the authors of books like Planet Taco from Oxford Press, who is now a professor at the University of Toronto, praised it highly, he says it's about time. This is being known. Uh, all of them has, have been very positive. Good. And so I'm, glad that you asked that but i i urge you uh, your viewers to see it and and write to me write to us uh, you know i i will certainly link to the the film's website and the culture map article that accompanies this podcast and and people can certainly find you you're on 
all, all social media platforms. You're, you're not a difficult man to get a hold of. Okay. Um, do you, I mean, you, you spent so long working on this. Do you, you have another project in mind? Do you know what your next film might be? Uh, <laughs> uh, I had a moniker once that this writer gave to me. Uh, Alan never sleeps because I have had so many projects. Uh, I have a television series that has been proposed to me based on this. Uh, an anthropologist from Colorado College, his name is Dr. Mario Montano. Um, he didn't propose it, but uh, uh, I can't tell you who the producer company was, but uh, what this professor did is he took all of the stories, for an example, for example, the Chile Queen story in San Antonio and the caterer, in San Antonio, the chef caterer who speaks right after their story and says it was lost because it was urbanized, it was monopolized. And, and so that's one, one, one episode in the series. What is the effect of urbanization on our food? And what is the effect of, of, of the legal structure of copyrights that then lead to near monopolies and the control of foods? These are the types of subjects that are, that are evoked by the film when the, when these people speak. So, uh, but I haven't committed. I, I, I still need to stay with this film. Uh, I'm also, I've been, been asked by the publisher to do another book. Uh, so there's no, there's no, I've got a lot of options and I'm interested. It, it you know, keeps me going. I love this food. I, I love, uh, you know, the thing about Texas is that it always changes. That's why Texas is always changing. I mean, it's changing now. Politically it's changing. I mean, if you spent if you spent three days without electricity and being cold, you almost want change, you know. Right, right. Yeah, we'll we'll see how much it actually changes. Uh, you know, in, in the next governor's race, I suppose. But we'll. Uh, but yes, it certainly it does it does feel like it's changing. Certainly, I mean, when you have a a twenty nine year old woman as the the chief executive of the largest of the most populous county in the state, you know. Uh, a Hispanic woman, it certainly feels like it's changing. Yeah. Yes. And when you can have uh, very young uh, ethnographers in the Rio Grande Valley actually taking field notes after they've gotten their degree and they live in the valley and they're, they're finding the, uh, the reports of uh, vendors who are cooking a cow's head in the ground, which is illegal. There's only one place that is allowed it and that's in brownsville texas right Meta's, which is a very Meta's, yes very famous uh, restaurant in brownsville and so we we know we know that he's the only one but he's not the only one he's the only one that is licensed to do it and he does it commercially but if, if uh, we're talking about change the change is that these stories are coming around by trained people who are documenting that the cow's head being cooked in the in the ground is still being sold every weekend in the Rio Grande Valley in different places, and there's no one getting sick. There's no one dying. <laughs> you know, it's it's a it's a it's a type of informal economy that I think will lead to us uh, finding out how we can talk about it, about an economic system that begins to help people move from an informal economy to a formal economy because they want to. You know, they don't want to be in the shadows. They don't want to be. They want to be part of the formal economy. It's simply that the path has been made very difficult. So these are some of the questions that come up in the film, I think. No, absolutely. All right. Um, I, I, that, that does bring me to the end of my questions. Is there, is there any aspect of the film that I haven't asked you about that you would like to discuss before we we're, we'll, we'll wrap this up on a, on a lighter note? But, but before I do that. <laughs> was there something you wanted to bring up? I think I think you've captured it all. I I, I like the fact that in the film, uh, it 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 brought new things to you that you were not aware. The one the one thing about the film that I'm very proud of is the soulfulness of it. There's one scene where there's a fire, and uh, we're transitioning after the barbacoa, and it's very sweet. Uh, by the way, the the music is all original music. The, the the theme song is an original composition by Belen Escobedo, so it's very celebratory. I, I think that's the kind of film I want it to be. You know, a celebration. 
Absolutely. No. And, and I think you, I think you achieved that. And again, I, I've said it already, but uh, I strongly encourage anyone who's listening to this. It's, it's free on Amazon prime. Is it, is it free on Apple TV as well? Uh, and well, if you're a subscriber, but even if you're not a subscriber on Amazon prime, you can still rent it, you know, for five bucks. Oh yeah. It's worth, it's, it's absolutely worth, it's worth five bucks, a hundred percent. All right. Um, Adon, before I let you go, we have to play the lightning round. Five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Adon Madrano, what is your favorite ingredient? Avocado. What is the first band you ever saw in concert? I've never seen one. (laughs) Oh, no. All right. What is your your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive-thru. Uh, oh my goodness. Uh, uh, tacos. Of course. Right. Uh, who is your, uh, who is your favorite professional sports figure, past or present? Uh, Martina Navratilova. And then finally, uh, what is your, what is your favorite? I was going to, I don't know. I don't know whether to ask you your favorite place to get a taco or your favorite taco filling. Let's try your favorite. What is your favorite place in Texas to get a taco? At two in the morning, after the bars closed in San Antonio, I would go to the original Taco Cabana before it became a chain. It was just a standalone one place on the corner of Hildebrand and McCullough. That is a perfect answer. All right, Adon, give us the the website for the film and, and any of the other information that we need to know. Thank you. The film is Truly Texas Mexican. It is, uh, the website is trulytexasmexican.com. It's by the title of the same book, Truly Texas Mexican. And you can watch the movie on Amazon Prime, Amazon, Apple TV, and Google TV. And on March 29th at 9 p.m., our local Houston PBS station, Channel 8, KUHT, will broadcast it in its entirety. The 90-minute feature film will be broadcast on our PBS channel here on March 29th. Wonderful. Don, thank you so much. Thank you. You can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.